Low Light, Episode 9 The Lost Story In his kitchen, Gavin munches on toast and trawls through his emails. The light is dreary. He looks up as the noise of the rain intensifies. It hammers on the roof lights and he frowns and pushes his breakfast away. He drinks his coffee and looses his focus into the middle distance. His ears prick up at a fluttering sound outside the back door. He stiffens and slowly rises to investigate. He sees a black thing, like a damp rag, on the ground. It twitches and Gavin jumps nearly out of his skin, out of all proportion to the slight movement. It's a bat. Oh no, not here. He looks about himself as if there might be someone who can help. I've got work to do. What's the matter? Have you lost your little friends? Are you hurt? He murmurs. Another twitch. Gavin moans, half turns, looks longingly at his laptop, looks back. The bat is miserably hauling itself along under the battering rain. It's heading for the hedge. That's it. You go and shelter under there. Nice hedge. Go and, uh, roost. Do you roost? The bat looks back at him over his shoulder, dejectedly. Sorry, I don't know. I must have missed the bat episode on the blue planet. Or the green planet, or... Ugh. Are you sure you're okay? Can I get you... What do you eat? Fruit? Insects? The bat disappears into the privet with a humph. Gavin looks on sadly. Sorry. Oh, God, Eric! He snatches up his phone and scrolls through all of the messages he's exchanged with the old man since leaving him in his lantern room yesterday evening. Despite the report of mouse mania last night and the increasing use of exclamation marks and capital letters in Gavin's reporting of MIM activity, Eric has barely responded and when he has, it has been a bit defensive and always telling Gavin not to panic. He sighs again, makes a decision, sets finger to screen. Can we talk in person? I'm concerned. Just seen a dejected bat. I think things are getting worse. A bleep, and Gavin reads the dismissive response with a sinking heart. It's looking very much like Gavin is going to have to take things in hand. He puts his phone down and gazes out into the garden, puffing his cheeks out, thinks to himself. He doesn't know Eric well, but he has actually spent a fair amount of time in the same vicinity as him. He thinks on and begins to realise Eric is not naturally a very lively person. He's usually fairly quiet. Dour. Gloomy, even. Gavin remembers that Eric hadn't seen Padma for two years. That must have been hard, if she was a good friend. And the state of his house, 
It must get to you, the cold, the damp, the mess. He must be depressed. And he's grieving. Then he remembers the fear in Eric's eyes as those moths began hurling themselves at his window in their hundreds. He grabs his phone and calls Shirley. Shirl, listen. I don't think Eric can deal with the Mims. He's not up to it. I've told him everything that's happened and he's just refused to speak to me. Yeah, there was a giant sad squirrel at Lewis and Sarah's this morning. Yes, sad. It was just sad, I could tell. And now there's a very sad bat. He listens. Shirl, are you laughing? It's not funny. Gavin's lips quirk. Stop it. There's a scream then from the other end of the phone. Gavin pulls the phone away from his ear in pain. Jesus, Shirl, are you okay? What? Blimey. Well, stay inside until they've gone. No, I don't think parrots usually attack people. Are they? I wonder why. No, Shirl, stay inside, just in case. You don't need to go out. Just stay inside where it's safe. Okay, good. Now listen. I think he's shutting his eyes to it. No, no, it's more than that. If I told him a herd of elephants was running up the track ridden by alien stormtroopers, I think he'd tell me I was over-worrying. I think he might be depressed and a bit scared, really. I'm starting to think he's told us all about Padma and the Mims and the track, and now he thinks that's enough. He's handed the responsibility over. I think he's hiding from it, you know? It's almost as if he feels like everything's his fault. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great that Charity's coming round, but... Shirl, you know, even if it is her, she obviously doesn't know anything about it, does she? Otherwise, why hasn't she said already? And the way Eric explained it, I think she'll need training or something. I don't think she'll suddenly be able to put everything right. Yeah, I know, but... No, nobody has been hurt yet. That's true. What, so we just learn to live with a bit more colourful animal activity about the place, you mean? Well, isn't that a bit irresponsible? I mean... Okay, uh, okay, yeah, I know, I'm too cautious. You keep telling me that. I'm not... Okay, Shirley, look, I just think we should assume the worst might happen, and then there's a faint wailing coming from the garden. Gavin stands on his tiptoes to try and see over the bushes at the edge of the patio and beyond to the lawn and the vegetable patch. There's another wail, like cats about to fight. There, he sees them. Four, no, five of them. Not fighting with each other, more like gathering and preparing to do something together. Them massing, looking towards the hedge where the bat went, the hedge between his and Tanya's house. He watches open-mouthed as they advance through the thick, bushy plants. What? Sorry, Shirl, there's loads of cats outside. I've never seen so many altogether. Like a cat gang, they are. Yeah, no, Shirley, look, this is weird. I'm going to go and see him. 
Can you get hold of Charity again and see her now, as soon as you can? I think an intervention is needed. Please, Cheryl. Look, you can tell me how boring and crap I am later, okay? Just do me this favour now. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be working, but I've got a really bad feeling about this. Please? Thank you. The rain pelts down into the black earth on the track. It drenches the fur of the mice and the big sad squirrel. It pushes the soil down and away from objects just under the soil surface, revealing them. Glints of things, some hard-edged, others soft. There's rumples of artificial fur, like animal costumes, dressing up clothes, and there's a name tag in one, although I can't see whose. There are little plastic ID bands from a hospital. There are the shiny faces of dolls, the fixed glare of teddy bears, plastic fairy wands and clown shoes. There are hard surfaces of musical instruments. There's a trumpet horn and old-fashioned iron cooking pots, yellow hard hats and metal jewellery, shoes, umbrellas and little mirror pieces and wrinkles of mud-caked cloaks with magical symbols on them. And moving among these things are furtive shivering voles, black moles, badgers, foxes flashing. And what's that up above? It's a shadow among the branches, movement that's almost monkey-like. And there, seeming to grow up out of the black-soaked twiggy trees and bushes, are more tropical-looking plants. Yes, palm trees, you can see the distinctive shape of the leaves. And flying above them are those parrots, back and forth to Shirley's house, it looks like. And there's a cow, is it? Big horns for a cow, but there it stands. Large, dark, steam rising from its back, stoically munching on the thin vegetation, despite the downpour. The scene seems to teem with life, that which we can see, and more of it, present, but still obscured. What else is there in this wild land? Do lions lie in wait, ready to rise up? There's grunting and snuffling in the loosening dirt of the track, and it's getting closer. Come on, out of the weather, let's go back. Don't slip, but hurry. Let's look over Shirley's wall. Oh, she's ignored Gavin's concern and is out in the garden, shooing away the flock of green parrots from her lawn. The ground here is blackened by the incessant rain, too. The grass seems to have taken fright and shrunk completely under the surface. Shirley is standing there, no coat on, batting occasionally at the odd parrot, still trying to get down to... To what? There's a jagged shape emerged from the ground, dark but with little metallic glints across it. Shirley is taking no heed of getting absolutely soaked as she stares at it, stock still. It's a kid's bike. The rain washes over it and it is slowly revealed, 
treasure being carefully uncovered, as if by an archaeologist. Shirley stands. It's her bike. Of course, it's her bike. She hasn't seen it in forty-odd years, but she'd know it anywhere. She looks up to the rain and the parrots, and she listens and hears animal noises coming from the track and a kind of chiming sound. Reg is in the kitchen, throwing himself at the inside of the door and barking his head off. Shirley's heart starts to beat loudly in her chest, and she turns suddenly and runs to the house, catching Reg roughly and wrestling him back inside, slamming the door behind her and locking it. Charity has decided to stay as far away from the police as possible until she can get some help. She is striking while the iron, as they say, is hot and is approaching Sally's house. As she passes Padma's house, though, she feels her feet slow down. She ignores the rain. She hears a kind of music, it seems, coming from the flapping crime scene tape. She frowns as she looks at the front step and sees the bloodstains still there, grips her belly. Tears spring to her eyes and she wipes her face with the back of her hand. Then there's a movement from inside. She's shocked enough to stop crying and holds her breath. She feels drawn forward to see what it is. Probably just the light, the weather's mad, wind, rain, probably the reflection of a branch from the tree or something. But she has to see properly. She walks into the front garden, and as she does, she feels as if she's falling, as if she's being pulled down through the air. She feels like she's going to soil herself, but she grips onto her stomach tighter and holds her jacket round her neck defensively as she makes her way inexorably towards the window. She can't reach to see in. There's a space below the window where the basement has been converted to allow light into the window there. She has to climb onto the front step and lean over to try and cup her hands on the glass and see inside. She looks and can't see anything except the books and cushions and pictures. But then, what's that? Something snaking up the wall. Only thin, like like a little vine. Like a plant. She strains to see harder and... There. Yes, it is. It's a plant. But it's moving. Definitely. There. A bud is unfurling and a little white flower shines out. It's that bindweed stuff they're always trying to root out from the Lee Garden. Another one. Charity is so absorbed, she's enchanted, delighted by this extraordinary thing. What do you think you're doing? Booms a strong, serious voice. Charity snaps her head round in complete shock. Colour drains from her face. What? Oh... Lewis, hi, I, um, I don't know. And she looks like she's just woken up in her pyjamas in the street, having sleepwalked from her bed. She blinks and shakes her head. Lewis strides into the garden, 
and takes hold of Charity's arm forcefully. Ow! What are you doing here, Charity? Let go, Lewis, please. Tell me. Stop it! He doesn't let go, only goes on staring into her face with his jaw clenched. Charity is frightened. She leans away from his staring eyes. There, I saw... She swallows. I thought I saw plants growing. Lewis starts to shake his head almost in disgust. I mean, actually growing, as I watched. And there's that sound again. I heard it before. Can't you hear it? Now Lewis's eyes fall to the side as he listens and his face slackens because it's not the same as the sound he heard earlier when he was looking at the fog, but there's something about it that he can't quite... Let Charity go, Lewis. It's Sally. She's in the next-door garden, feet planted firmly apart, one hand on her hip, one wielding a very nasty-looking meat mallet. The three stare at each other. Let her go, Lewis. What do you think you're doing, you big bully? Let go of her arm now. Lewis drops Charity's arm and takes a step back, as if he's suddenly become himself again. I'm sorry, Charity, he says. I only... I wondered what you were doing. I just... What are you doing, Charity? I don't know. Charity's attention is being pulled up into the majestic reach of tree number 33. So awed is her expression that the others can't help following her line of sight. There, among the wet branches and the lichen and the rutted bark, streaming with rivulets of water, little leaf buds are emerging from the winter wood, unfurling and stretching themselves out and catching the falling raindrops. Lime green, soft, fresh and new. Beneath their feet, Lewis and Charity look down to see Padma's flower beds breaking into life too. Shoots climb into the air. Spring is, well, springing in Lower Lee. A shrill note rips apart their reverie and Charity fumbles for her phone, pausing with worry on her face as she checks the caller ID before answering. She accepts it. Shirley, I'm outside Pabna's house. No, Sally and Lewis are here too. What? Okay. Are you... Uh... Shirley's on her way round, says Charity, in a dreamlike state. What's happening? Oh, God, that sound! She grimaces. What sound? asks Sally. What is it? says Charity starting to crumple, seemingly in pain. Charity, are you okay? says Lewis, frowning himself from the penetrating noise. Lewis, help her, bring her to my house. And so he does, and they help Charity round onto the pavement and up Sally's garden path as Shirley runs from the end of Rowan Drive and up towards them. They all bundle into Sally's house, and the door shuts on the strange scene developing on Hawthorne Road. Eric can see Gavin at his front door. 
He spies him, not from the lantern room, but from Elle's room, stage right, first floor. He frowns and grumbles to himself, sighs and shakes his head. No, go on with you, he murmurs. I can't go out in this rain, can I, Deirdre? No, I'm an old man. I'm entitled to stay in the dry on a winter's day. Eric glances from under his grey, wiry eyebrows and sniffs at the drips of water making their way down the walls. He looks at Deirdre. I know there's leaks. It's called character, Deirdre. You know that. Personality. (laughs) That's what this house has. Come on, let's go and find that electric heater. Gavin hammers on the front door. I think he's trying to break the will of that poor door. He's not showing any mercy, is he? Oh, I wish he'd just leave me alone. I can't do anything, can I? Not yet. In the pouring rain down below, Gavin stands back and looks up. Has to go back out beyond the wall to see up into the lantern room. Is that a figure there, looking down, or is he imagining it? Gavin calls Eric again, listens to the rings, pulls the phone away from his ear, strains to see if he can hear the phone ringing from within the house. It clicks to voicemail. Eric, it's me. Can I come in, if you're at home? Things are starting to get out of hand. We need your guidance. Call me back. Please? And he shoves the phone back in his coat pocket, tries to squint up through the rain. He sighs. Oh, Eric, what's going on? Gavin stands as the rain soaks him. Then he seems to gird his loins, and off he goes through the wrought iron gate that leads into the garden. He wades through the soaking undergrowth, making slow progress as the brambles and shrubs grab his legs wetly. He's aiming to go round the house, past the terrace, and see if the side door is unlocked. Having received no response from her knocks at the theatre door, Ruby Hussein has herself ventured into the backstage area of the building and is currently teetering atop a stack of wooden pallets trying to see through a tiny toilet window into the theatre. She's round the side of the building, and the wall next to her separates the theatre property from Eric's land. She freezes as she hears the drag of movement through the brush, listens, stretches her neck up and round, glimpses a blue hood which she recognises as Gavin's, tips precariously thrusts a thin arm out to grab onto... what? Nothing. Only air. She plunges into a mess of old paint cans and buckets below, while shrieking out, Mr Baron! Gavin starts, eyes darting in utter surprise. He ducks instinctively, his foot slipping off a small rock, and he turns his ankle. He yelps over the sound of the clatter and the thumps emanating from behind the big grey stone wall to his left. 
the rain continues in the brief quiet, undaunted. Officer, uh, he ventures, are you all right? Ruby throws herself to her feet in anger. She chucks debris out of the way and brushes herself off. It's Hussein! Officer Hussein! She shouts. Yes, thank you, I'm fine. Ow! She's not fine. She cringes as she spies blood on her hand. Where's that from? What? Calls Gavin. Ruby considers and then realises her vision has gone blurry and a bit red. She brings her fingers to her brow and feels the hot surge of her blood. Shit it! What? Calls Gavin again. It's okay, Mr. Baron. Ah! Ruby steps forward and realises that her ankle is none too clever. Gavin grimaces and rolls his eyes, realising he'll have to go and see if she's okay. Ah! Gavin puts weight on his bad foot. It's like Laurel and Hardy. The crowlet is enjoying the scene from her perch on the lantern roof anyway. Let's just hope she doesn't decide to add to the proceedings. Oh, yes, there. She's swooping down and... There we go. Bang on Gavin's left shoulder. The rain washes the bird excrement down his new coat in little lumpy bits. Gavin fights down the desire to throw up and pushes his way back through the shrubbery as was and round to the theatre. He makes his way to where he assumes Ruby is, but he can't see her. Then he spins round, as Ruby says, right behind him. What were you doing in the undergrowth, Mr. Baron? Gavin is dumbstruck. She takes pity on him. I was only joking when I said earlier. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to see if Eric was in, he says with a weak smile. They stand facing each other in the deserted car park of an old theatre, the rain hammering down with grim determination. It's like the end of a film. No, not four weddings and a funeral, that's not the image at all. It's more like something from With Nail and I. Ruby looks up at him. He sees the blood on her face. Blimey, that looks nasty. I'm fine. No, really. You worry about your limp and the bird shit on your shoulder. I'll worry about my facial injury, says Ruby straight-faced as she gets her notepad out. Gavin is astonished at her attitude and spurts out a laugh which he promptly stifles. Perhaps you can help me, Mr. Baron. It's Gavin, if you... Call me Gavin. Ruby has a polite smile fixed to her face, but there's a little bloom of roses in those smooth cheeks. I'm looking for Charity Fahe. She works here, doesn't she? Volunteers on a scheme? The Spotlight Project? Uh, sometimes, yeah, but... Uh, I do need to find her as soon as possible. Ruby mops at the blood with her hand, searches her pockets for a tissue. I only live at the end of the road. I can get you a plaster for that, at least, if you... Uh... But then Gavin feels his phone buzz grasps for it, hoping to see Eric's name, and is dismayed to see Shirley pleading for him to come to Sally's house and talk to Charity. Sally's house? 
Ruby Hussein watches his face. He tries another smile. She raises her eyebrows. He shifts to his other foot, grimaces in pain, and drops his phone. Quick as a fox, Ruby snatches it up and with a glance at the screen, smiles as she hands it back. They look at each other. Ruby widens her brown liquid eyes, one of them closing slightly, under duress from the cut above her eyebrow. Gavin flusters, points to his phone inanely, shoves it in his pocket. Yes, right, well, come on, I'll take you round there. Sally will have some first aid, at least. Ruby nods, pulls her walkie-talkie from her shoulder and issues instructions for her partner to meet her on Hawthorne Road. Then, the dynamic duo limp off. Not so dynamic, then, are they? Sorry. Oh, wait. Gavin's got an idea. I wouldn't suggest going via the track or anything at this stage, Gavin. Let's go via the track. It'll be quicker. The track? Yeah, the old dark track. The, uh, there's a footpath. You can get out the back of the theatre and straight across to behind Sally's house. It might be a bit muddy, but... Okay, then. And she's off. Gavin watches her limp away, impressed. Then he has a little think and realises that going by the track might not be the best idea he's ever had. What did I say? Honestly. Or... Actually, it'll be extremely muddy and very slippery, so we could just go, I'm not afraid of a bit of mud, Mr. Barron. Oh, please, call me Gavin. Come on, Mr. Barron. Once inside Sally's miraculously clean house, she's a fast worker, must be a case of nominative determinism. Charity's pained expression eases, and she blinks her head clear. She looks up at Sally, glances at Lewis and Shirley. I've got to get back to work, but I want to know. Sally cuts him off. Don't let us stop you if you have to go, Lewis. Silence as they all take in Sally's command of the situation. Lewis frowns. Yes, all right, Sally, point taken. Charity, I apologise for my behaviour. I hope I didn't hurt you. I, uh, d- I'm upset about Padma. She died in my arms. She was my good friend. And the person who killed her was someone... He blinks to stop the tears coming. Like, uh, like you. I, I mean, a-, a similar height. Sally holds a hand up. Lewis, of course you're upset. It's understandable. But are you seriously suggesting that Charity here hurt Padma? She gives a scoff. Yes, that's exactly the right word. A scoff. There's a reason Sally does the admin for the theatre and doesn't actually step foot on the stage. Charity looks uncomfortable. Why is Sally defending her so vigorously? Shirley keeps her powder dry. This is not what she expected. Lewis is baffled. Something seems off. Now, Charity, you need a hot drink. Sit down and I'll get them. Shirley, you look after her. And she's off. Charity turns her head to Lewis. You heard that sound, didn't you? 
and you saw the leaves in the tree. Look, you can still see them. Lewis, still frowning, nods stiffly. Shirley steps to the window to look at the tree. She blows air out between pursed lips. She comes back over to Charity, and quietly she says, Was it the same sound you heard yesterday on the track? Charity nods. I heard it too, just now, outside, but also outside my house, just before I called you. Charity blinks. Shirley glances at Lewis and then asks Charity gently, Do you understand what's happening? Charity shakes her head. Fear is back in her eyes. She looks at Lewis, suspicious of him again. Shirley follows her gaze. Do you? she asks. No, he begins defensively. Well, not exactly. I mean, I heard Eric talking yesterday and Padma might have mentioned something about... I'm not sure. I think I have probably misunderstood what she was talking about. I thought that I... You what? asks Charity. Nothing. I was mistaken. It doesn't matter. I don't understand what all this is. He gestures to the window. But he looks almost fondly at Charity. I think you must have an idea about it, Charity. Or at least a feeling. Why would I? Because he steadies himself. Shirley watches him intently. Because I think you must be the one, he whispers. What? Shirley looks like she's going to burst in a minute. Padma said, well, she didn't specify. She implied that she had an heir. And I thought at first that she meant she had a living relative, or at least that she had written a will, that she was talking about bequeathing her estate. But recently she started to talk in a similar way to Eric, about ideas of connection and imagination and the natural world. I think that she was talking about her abilities, which many people thought were nebulous, but charity, it's you. I'm sure of it. You're her heiress. Shirley swallows, keeps her counsel. Lewis looks at her. He smiles. You know. You know too, don't you? Did Eric tell you? I didn't know who, but Eric said there must be someone. She looks at Charity. Oh dear, Charity is a rabbit in headlights. I, uh, oh, God. Charity, are you okay? Asks Shirley, concerned. Charity begins to break down. She slowly collapses, it seems. Her legs crumple, and she's holding her belly again, as if it's her who was slashed by a sharp blade on Sunday evening, not Padma. They catch her and try to get her to the sofa. Charity? Sally breezes back in through the door. Oh, 
Sally, she's not well. Get her some water or something. And a blanket. She's freezing, says Shirley. They rest her back on the soft seat. Charity is breathing shallowly, looking at Lewis and then back to Shirley. I didn't understand. She tried to tell me, I think, but I didn't know what she was talking about. When was this? asks Lewis. Uh, On Sunday. She suddenly convulses into tears. Shirley pulls her into a hug and Charity sobs onto her shoulders. When she calms down a little, wiping the snot from her face and sitting back, Shirley says, Listen, I think you need help, Charity. We will help you. But we can only do that if you tell us what happened. Charity, were you there when she died? insists Lewis. Sally has fetched a blanket and is standing in the doorway, clutching it. She hears him and rushes forward now, ready to divert, to distract, to try and undo some of the damage she appears to have done. Come on, sit forward, Charity, that's it. Here, try and drink this. She puts a glass of water to her lips, which Charity pushes away, shaking her head. Were you? pushes Shirley gently. Charity wipes her eyes roughly and nods. She looks through her watery eyes at Sally, who has stood and looks alarmed. Charity continues, though. She's like a dam cracking. I went to confront her because she knew about what Tony did. She knew about their business, you know, the photographs and videos. What Henry said was true, and she knew it, didn't she, Sally? Sally, says Shirley, surprised. Sally has gone white. She steps back a little, shakes her head while trying to smile. Tell us what happened, says Lewis firmly, as he crouches down to Charity. Exactly what happened. Eyes swimming, Charity sniffs braces herself and I went round after Sally told me that Padma knew things about you know what I told Henry and I was angry and upset and I wanted her to tell me what she knew and then I don't know do something something to make things right because I can't remember you see I was only small I can't remember exactly but I have this feeling. She clutches her stomach. And it's always been there and it's been getting worse since I told Henry. And I could talk about it and go over it. I thought it would feel better if I did that, but it got worse. Shirley has tears in her eyes too. And she sits next to Charity and wipes her face and nods her head to encourage her onwards. When I spoke to Padma, she said, she said the reason I couldn't remember was because my story had been kept hidden from me. There's no memories in me, nothing good to remember from then, but also nothing bad, like just a gap, a nothingness. She said that meant I could make any story real, anything. 
and that all I had to do was tell my story the way I wanted and it would come true. She said I had to feel the earth beneath me, inhabit the air and enjoy the thoughts in my head. That if I just tried to catch them, I would end up with something good. But I was so angry. And it didn't make any sense what she was going on about, all this fucking hippie crap. Lewis is shaking. He covers his mouth with his hands. It's all right, Charity, it's all right. Just tell us what happened. I told her that what I wanted was for her to tell me about Tony and what he did. But she said she didn't know or that she wasn't supposed to know or something. I don't fucking know. I thought she was lying, covering it all up. So I told her that anyone who helped Tony fucking Lawton Jones should be punished. And that if she wouldn't tell me, that meant she was helping him and his friends and she should be punished. She should be hurt. She should bleed and she should be in pain for it. Lewis has fallen back into a sitting position on the floor, his arms hugging his knees, shaking his head as he listens. Sally has backed against the door, her hands over her mouth. Shirley kneels down before Charity now, putting her hands on Charity's arms, willing strength into her to continue her confession to the end. She nods at her again. Go on, tell the rest of it. It just appeared. It appeared in my hand. It was old, like an antique. I remember it was so strange. I I swear I didn't take a knife with me, but it was there in my hand. And it looked so sharp, as if, I don't know, it was as if, it felt as if it wanted to hurt Padme. And Padma was stood in front of me. She didn't back away or anything. She said, you have to do it because your story is more important than mine. I can't help you like this. I'm just in the way. You have to do it. Feet on the earth, head in the air, breathing in the light, the the low light. You must tell your story from its beginning to its end. And... Suddenly, I was on her front step and there was blood and it was like I woke up and I saw what I'd done and I just ran then. In the front room of the Victorian Terrace, there is silence, except for the quiet breathing of Lewis, Sally and Shirley and the swallows and sniffs of 16-year-old Charity. The rain outside is steady, but not pouring down anymore. Shirley hugs Charity again. She grips her and looks at her seriously. Charity, you didn't kill her, she says. Charity blinks. You didn't, Charity. Did she, Lewis? Charity looks at him and he doesn't hesitate. He shakes his head slightly. No. Sally looks appalled. What? She's just told us. Shh, says Shirley. This wasn't Charity's fault. Anyway, she would never have gone round there without your say-so, Sally, would she? What? 
No, no, come on. I, I only said Padma might, Sally. You have to stay out of this, okay? I think you've done enough damage, so stay out of it. We have to help Charity. Blimey, there's no messing with Shirley in this mood. Okay. She stands and walks over to her. Sally. Okay. Yes, yes, all right, says Sally. But what do you suggest we do, Shirley? The police are looking for her. She'll have to answer their questions eventually, says Lewis. Not yet, though. We need to think about it. Let's get her back to my house. We'll get a lawyer at least. They're here, says Charity then, raising her head. Who? says Sally. The doorbell rings. Sally clutches at her heart. Told you she'd have been a disaster in anything other than heightened melodrama. They can all see the police car outside the front window now. They look at each other with pale faces. Lewis shrugs silently. Shirley sets her jaw. Come on, we can go out the back. Lewis, you answer the door, you'll block their view. Come on, Charity. Lewis nods and steps forward to enact the plan when... Miss Thoroughgood, it's the police. We're here to speak to Charity Farhey. We know she's there with you. Please answer the door. Sally gives an apologetic look at a deflated Shirley and a petrified Charity as she leaves to open the door and admit Ruby Hussein, face covered in blood, her jabbering partner and Gavin. They come in and stand in the doorway of the living room. Gavin shuffles past the partner and stands next to Ruby, taking in the scene. The neighbours stare back. Ruby and Gavin are both covered in mud from knee to toe, with much mud generally splashed about themselves elsewhere. They're drenched from the rain and both have scratches on their faces and hands. Gavin is clutching on to a bit of plastic, and Officer Hussein is settling her hat back onto her head, careful to avoid the cut on her forehead. There's something of an air of them having overcome adversity together, coloured by a vague sense of trauma. Shirley frowns. There's a new sound audible from outside now something incongruous for the time of year. The sun is shining now, and the leaves on the trees on Hawthorne Road are making a lovely rustling sound in the breeze. There's birdsong. Bees buzz. Charity is escorted to the police car. Ruby Hussein turns to give Gavin a slight smile before getting into the car herself, and then they drive away. So... One storyteller has been found, only to be lost again for the moment. The neighbours stand, watching the police car drive out of Lower Lee. Watching on, too, from under hedges and behind garden gates, perched in trees and peering from underneath piles of wood and the backs of bin stores, are many other inhabitants of the neighbourhood. They sit or stand in silence, only the faint shivering of whiskers and blinking of eyes being detectable, as if they are watching a funeral cortege disappear. 
before they slowly begin to return to the old dark track. been listening to Low Light, written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, I hope you'll help me by liking, rating and reviewing. You can do this on your favourite podcast app or on the podcast website. More information can be found on crawleyvoicestudio.com. You may also like to know that I'm an audiobook narrator by trade and you can listen to samples of my work by going to Audible and searching for my name, Melanie Crawley. You might be interested in some of the books I've narrated, so I'll be sharing a few details with you after each low-light episode from now on. This time I want to highlight the work of a fantastic author I work with directly, Nicholas Nicastro, and his most recent title, The River Through Rome. In the waning years of the Roman Republic, a talented engineer is tapped to bring water to one of the city's most notorious slums. Nonius believes he is doing good for his city, but he isn't counting on the many obstacles that prevent anything from getting done in those turbulent times. His troubles multiply when he falls in love with beautiful, haunted Amaris, concubine of a senator, who is determined to stop Nonius's aqueduct from going through. The clash between them runs from the bedrooms to the streets to the courtrooms of the Eternal City, in one of the most fateful periods in her history. Nick writes the kind of vivid, deeply immersive historical fiction that brings the past to unforgettable life, and I hope that you'll listen to a sample of it on Audible by searching for the book title The River Through Rome, or you can visit my website to find one, crawleyvoicestudio.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time for the next episode of Low Light. <laughs>